And that, that was great, because that's, well, it's actually one of Susan and Meyer's favorites. And, uh, and after all those years of living in D.C., you know, that's Richard Smallwood's territory, and uh, the choirs that always sing his stuff, and it just brought back a lot of memories. So thank you so much. Good memories. Yeah. Man. <clears throat> thank you all. I've been saying thank you a lot, and thank you sounds so insufficient. There's so much that I'm grateful for and for the Lord giving me the opportunity to serve among such a great group of people. Lord, I want to say thank you to you, Lord, because you've been so gracious, giving me and Susan this opportunity to be here in Minneapolis for these six, six plus years and <clears throat> to learn more about serving you and serving your people, to have experience in this new city, to try to simply be faithful to the call on our lives. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless the sanctuary richly, deeply. Lord, yes, we have practical concerns. We want to keep paying for this space. We want to make sure we can heat it and cool it and keep it nice and, and all of those practical things. But we want to do some wonderfully creative things, too, and make sure that this community knows that we're serious about you and about our presence here. So I pray, Lord God, you'd bring all the needed resources, right people, all that's necessary. And Lord, I pray as we look into your word together that you would help me to communicate faithfully in a way that's helpful for us as we uh, pursue this path of discipleship. We give you glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. I, um, I haven't been a very faithful journaler. My wife journals well, and I'm spotty. I write down little things to remind me, you know, especially more as I get older. And sometimes those little things are triggers, you know, to help me remember. But this has been a rich day. I will not uh, soon forget. I mean... In the first service, Erica Jensen said all these things about me, and, and now to hear Vida say it, and I thought, I'm getting overwhelmed. And, I, and, and then Sean spoke prophetically to me. Sean is Erica's husband. As he said, um, you know, he wanted me to experience God's grace, he said, because I can be hard on myself. And I thought, oh, I didn't know Sean knew me that well. <laughs> and uh, it really spoke to me and ministered to me. And when people are kind to me, you people are kind to me, I sometimes don't know what to do. And I know I can deflect it. I know I can change the subject because I haven't always learned how to receive such things. And I've learned that about myself in the last, oh, maybe about eight years or so. And I've been trying to be more sensitive to that. And um, so I do want to simply say thank you, not to deflect it. I just want to receive the goodness um, that you've been showing me and this kindness. Thank you so very much. As I continue with thank yous, I want to give a big thank you to uh, Pastor Rose for her leadership and for this whole Vacation Bible School team. I love Vacation Bible School, and I was formed by it as a little kid. I used to help when I was a bigger kid. I used to help when I was an adult. But I was away all week um, uh, teaching an intensive course in the Gospels, so I missed it. I was just following the group texts from the staff, and... Um, and uh, and there was also this blessing of 
in my life of ministry, there were times when those things didn't happen unless I was around. And I feel so excited that we can have a powerful week and I, not, and I don't have to physically be there, which is a maturation in my own life as well as in the ministry. But I wanted you to know something serious too, if you don't know. We had an incident on Tuesday night and there was a, it was a shooting at, actually. And uh, it was right between us and Merwin, the, uh, I mean, the, the parking lot. And, uh, and there's always been activity there through this little alleyway to the back parking lot. And uh, it was, you know, 6.30 or so at night. And grace of God, there were no kids outside, but our, our volunteers were around. And, uh, and the team came together in such a powerful, mature way, came together, prayed. People called the authorities, yes. Um, there was a communication, some of you know, that went out right away. And one of those communications was to the elders who responded powerfully. They came out and they prayed over the, over the grounds. They made themselves physically present during the rest of the VBS week. Of course, the most important thing for us was to keep your kids safe. So we didn't do outside activities on a Wednesday, Thursday. But on Friday, we had the cookout outside as a testimony to our community. And as Pastor Mike said, many people came out. And it could be on the one hand, you know, this fear and I'm going to talk about a little bit in my message that we could think, oh my goodness, this is horrible. Why are we here? But when we see the horrible stuff, you're answering your question. We're here because we want to be salt and light. In fact, I say want to be, but Jesus declares us, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. So we are here to represent the Lord. And I, I commend that team. And I just want to say thank you, Pastor Rose, for all you did. <clears throat> now, and because Pastor Rose and I share a lot of temperament, I know she is saying, but I wasn't the only one. And the rest of the team really did pull together, and Amy particularly, who got the communication going and moving. I want you to know, I talked to Pastor Edron yesterday because he's, he's at Chick, and I wanted to get his perspective on things too. And he said, you know, make sure people know we have already been in conversations with the owners of the, of the shops in Merwin's lot. Well, it's our lot too, but... Merwin and a little check cash in place and all of that. We've had conversations with them we, and brought in council member uh, Jeremiah Ellison and representatives of fourth precinct. We were already having conversations because this is an active, busy corner and has been for years. And we think that's why the Lord brought us here. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we wanted more creative solutions. We don't want to just keep policing things. We want to find a way to do something uh, better, but we still want it to be safe enough that you feel you can come and bring your kids here. So I say that with all sobriety because a couple of days later, they smashed the window on our office building and stole one of our Apple TVs off the wall. So we, Jeremy, who's been here for a long time, he, he remembers the days when they were kept breaking in at 37th and Emerson, and now we had to break in over here. Now, I tell you that not to freak you out, but as the kids were getting ready to go off the chick and we prayed with them yesterday and had a wonderful time there. Pastor Paul Robinson, some of you may know him, African-American brother who's been long time in the covenant, used to serve at Community Covenant and planted a church called Grace Outreach. But Grace Outreach, Community Cove, and Sanctuary all went as a group together, one large group together on two buses, and they should be in Nashville now, I think. I mean, not Nashville, Knoxville, right? And um, anyway, Pastor Paul was talking to me, and he, I was telling him about what happened, those two incidents, and he said, but you know, more people are seeing your witness and how you respond to that. And also, he said, it's going to be two things. You know, on the one hand, the devil will keep being busy, 
because we're doing good things. But on the other hand, he said, people will see how you respond as a church community. And he said, and they're going to be attracted to your witness here. He said, and he affirmed that God put us in this corner for a reason. And I, and I, uh, I want to uh, acknowledge that too, that um, I, don't want to, I don't want you to be afraid as I tell you these two sobering pieces of information. But I'm saying that I believe very strongly that the, that the Sanctuary Covenant Church is poised to be the witness in this very strategic corner right now. So God bless us. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> so even though it was a very busy week and stressful, and I'm hoping that some of our staff are taking some time off. You know Andrea, her time off means she's going to do, she's going to run. So she's running today somewhere in some race somewhere. <laughs> But I'm confident that as we grow as a healthy church, I know we have to grow in number two. We want, to, we want both our services and maybe more services to be full of people. So we do need to grow in number. But we also want to continue to grow in depth. And I think the Lord has been blessing us that we are a healthy church, that rather than people pointing fingers and saying, what's, what's going on, what's going on, people came together. And to me, that was a powerful testimony of how we can be. And in the passage for today, hints at even these things, which is interesting because I was working on this while I was in Illinois and, and wasn't here for all these things. But the passage that's uh, in, in Paul's letter, uh, 2 Timothy, touches on the kinds of uh, tensions that we felt this week. And as he is writing this letter, or as we read what he wrote, I should say, he can sound like a cranky old man. I mean, we're reading a letter that's his last letter, a letter before he's executed, and he says a lot of what he's thinking and feeling, and he's giving um, advice to his protege, Timothy. And that's why I picked this letter as my last uh, communications uh, and sermons to you guys. I wanted it to be a similar kind of thing where I get to share, you, share with you these kind of final words of hopefully wisdom, <laughs> hopefully, or at least practice practical words. And as he's doing this, and when we get to chapter three and he starts talking about some bad stuff, he does sound like a cranky old man. He sounded like our parents when I was coming up in the 70s who complained about our hair, complained about tattoos, complained about men wearing earrings, complained about short skirts and platform shoes, and always complained about our music. I mean, it's like in the old musical Bye Bye Birdie, kids, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. That's the kind of stuff. But you know, then by the time we became adults and parents, and we swore we would never be like our parents, we started complaining about the hair, the tattoos, the jewelry, the clothing, and of course, the music. It seems like the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I suspect, though, every generation in America has felt like their generation was the one going to hell in a handbasket, as the expression is. So when Paul discusses the moral condition of people in the near future, he sounds like a grumpy old man. But I think if we're honest, we can see much of what he says is true. He's actually not an alarmist. He's being prophetic. He is, he is speaking to the condition of humanity and our need for God. He's also telling Timothy and telling us that some people are really not ready to be disciples. In fact, they are detrimental to the health of Christian community. And you can't really have true fellowship with them. So as always, I'm trying to encourage us to be discerning as students of humanity, students of the word. And, 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 and our goal is to observe the condition of the world, exercise good, godly discernment. So we're seeing that our discernment happens on a few levels. First, we should not be surprised by evil. Should not be surprised by evil. What happened last week, while it's bothersome to us, I think most of us think, yeah, but we understand Secondly, we must be wise so as not to follow the wrong people. 
And finally, we must trust God to be the judge of those who oppose the truth. So those are levels of discernment that I want us to see as we look into the passage for today. Second Timothy chapter three, starting at verse one. Second Timothy three, starting at verse one. You must understand this, that in the last days, distressing times will come. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding on to the outward form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid them. For among them are those who make their way into households and captivate silly women, overwhelmed by their sins and swayed by all kinds of desires, who are always being instructed and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. As Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these people of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith also oppose the truth. But they will not make much progress because as in the case of those two men, their folly will become plain to everyone. The Lord blesses his holy word. Paul uses this phrase, in the last days. A Greek word for last is eschatos, so eschatology is the study of the last things, or we might say the end times. And I grew up in a little holiness church, as I've told you many times, and the saints would sing these choruses I've never heard uh, before, never heard since, but they would sing one, we're living in the last days, living in the last days, living in a time when men won't mend their ways. They're calling right, wrong, calling wrong, right. Surely we're living in the last days. They would sing that all the time. And as a kid, I was always scared because the last days always sounded really scary. And that was almost 40, oh my goodness, more than 40 years ago. <laughs> This is my 40th high school uh, reunion is this year, so it's definitely more than 40 years. Um, but to the New Testament writers, the last days started when Jesus ascended to glory. So the church has always been living in the last days. The church has always been living with an expectation of Jesus' return. And we've always been living with a vigilance, watching the signs of the times. And Paul says one of the signs of the times is how distressing they will be. It's funny, but no matter how advanced we become as a society, we, we, we've gotten better in so many ways. I mean, medical practices, better ways to build buildings and, and, and better ways to travel and to communicate, so much more. But, but even with all of that, I, I would still say that there are those who would say we are living in distressing times. And Paul tells Timothy that the times will be distressing, perhaps so he isn't lulled into a false sense of security or, or surprised by evil. So I say we should not be surprised by evil because despite all of our advances, human beings are still a sinful mess without Jesus. Yeah, amen. And Paul has lots of ways to describe these people who oppose God. Now, we're not going to go through each of those items on the list, but I want to point out how misplaced affection is the main thing that he does. When people would write these lists, they often would put the most significant thing right at the beginning for emphasis. Think about Paul's fruit of the Spirit, if, you, if you've heard that before. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. It's on the list first because that's the primary virtue. He wants to put that one out there first. So right here, the first on Paul's list is that these people love 
themselves. Next, they love money. And then to cap it off at the end of the list, he says they love pleasure more than they love God. Clearly, misplaced affection is these people's problems. They, they, they love the wrong thing. God wants us to love him first and foremost. Love him with our whole heart, our whole selves, our whole minds. Love our neighbors as ourselves and even love our enemies. But selfishness, greed, hedonism, this will never honor God. Now, as I said, we were robbed next door and we do share a parking lot with a liquor store, which is interesting. And, and that parking lot attracts a lot of negative activity. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that evil only exists in North Minneapolis. There's enough misplaced love to go around. There's even evil in a, di- a diner. <laughs> I picked on your diner a little bit. <laughs> Don't be surprised that the last days are distressing. It's what Paul taught. It's what Jesus taught. And even though we are called to work for justice in the world and to try to, and, and to, try to bring God's presence and goodness into the world, we know that evil exists and should not surprise us. You, you can move to a new address, you can build fences and walls, you can even buy weapons, but you will not put an end to evil. It is always present until Jesus comes again. So my encouragement for us here at the sanctuary is to assume that evil will always be present, but to remember that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against other human beings. We see this evil that gets manifested in people's behavior. But at the core, the evil is from the adversary, Satan. So don't be surprised by evil. Amen. Now, previously, Paul's letter called 1 Timothy, he talks about the love of money as the root of all kinds of evil, he says. Right here, Paul says, loving themselves and loving money, and then he lists more kinds of evil. And what's, what's bothersome to me, and maybe even a little weird, is that after he describes these negative characteristics of people who oppose God, he says they have, though, this outward form of godliness, but don't have God's power. In other words, these are religious people, some of them anyway, are religious people who go through the motions. They appear to be godly. They know what to say. They know what to look like. But in essence, that's hypocrisy. So my second point, my second admonition is that we need to be wise enough to not be fooled by the wrong people. I don't know if you've ever met people acquainted with church customs and rituals, maybe even know a few Bible verses, been around the church for years, but they are not really exemplifying the character of Christ. I've met people like that. I've met people who put on a front around church people. I remember back in Brooklyn, this guy who came to the youth group, I'm sorry, young adults, they're all the youth to me now. But anyway, to the young, <laughs> and Susan and I were in this young adult group. And back then, we just put everything on paper, you know, paper lists of membership and address. And we were getting phone calls. This guy, he was trying to uh, sell insurance to all of us. He had gotten into the group because he saw us as customers and not really to be part of the group. I've seen guys join young adult groups just to meet women, and they're not necessarily interested in following Jesus. There have been a lot of charlatans, even in the pulpit. Some of you are too young. There were some folks here this morning that I met who grew up in the neighborhood around where I grew up. They were visiting from, from out of town, but some of them grew up in New York, and they were my age and a little older. So I mentioned the name Reverend Ike, and they all knew who I was talking about. But Reverend Ike used to sell his secret of good luck. 
and he would be on the radio and the television. I remember Ebony did a spread on him when I was a kid, and he had all, like 20 cars, and like half of them were Rolls Royces. I'm like, you don't need one Rolls Royce, but they got like 10 of them or something. He, he had this opulent lifestyle before lifestyles of the rich and famous. He had a form of godliness. In fact, his mantra wasn't about the love of money. He said the lack of money is the root of all evil. <laughs> and he said that. People were believing it. I mean, there are those people who can talk a good game about believing in God, but it's talk. And Paul will have none of that. So back at the time of Ephesus, where, where, uh, which is where Timothy was, there was a problem with women having access to good theological education. That's probably still a problem. And in both 1st and 2nd Timothy, there's a concern about false doctrine. So those things are going together. In 1st Timothy, Paul says that women should learn. He says, but they need to learn in a very rare word he used that ultimately means humility. He says quietness. But in that context, he encourages women not to teach. The implication is that they are being subjected to deception. Paul does not want that false doctrine to be spread. Something similar is going on here in 2 Timothy. Paul says these false teachers have a form of godliness but no real power, and they push their way into homes to take advantage of these women who are in this immature, vulnerable place. There are some negative expressions, I know. Silly is the way NRSV translates it. Gullible is the way the NIV translates it. But the point is that these women are in an immature, vulnerable place. It says they are overwhelmed by sins, they're swayed by desires, and then... These women who are immature, it says that they push themselves into, they, they kind of force their way into, and, and they, they teach them, but they don't teach them the right thing. So it says they are always being instructed, but never arriving to the knowledge of the truth. What a horrible place to be, to have a false teacher always teaching you, but you're never getting to the truth. That's a tragic situation. This is the problem of false doctrine that's coming through people who love themselves, who love money, who love pleasure, who deny the power of God and have only a form of godliness. And, that, and Paul just uses that situation as an example. He's, the bigger pi picture is that there are people who, who don't really love God, but they appear to be genuine. Verse 6, these charmers working their way into people's homes are part of the same group that's mentioned in verses 2 to 5. In other words, all those ugly characteristics that we just saw in 2 to 5, some of them belong to people who are going to church. These false prophets are cut from the same cloth as the evildoers that Paul has mentioned. So Christians, therefore, need to have the discernment that I'm talking about. So part of the work of pastors and elders, at least in our church and hopefully others also, is to safeguard the Christian doctrine. I want to encourage us to always exercise discernment. There are always wolves in sheep's clothing. So encourage your leadership to stay theologically educated. Um, I mean, yes, we're always looking for best practices, and we had to do that here. We had to tighten up some things. We had to figure out how to do things better. We're always looking. Pastor Edrin is always a student of trying to figure out what's a better way to do this or a better way to do that, and that's important. But let's not miss the foundational pieces our beliefs, our theology, our treatment of Scripture. We need to safeguard the teachings of Jesus. Paul's command at the end of verse 5 sounds harsh. It's translated in RSV as avoid them. It's a word that could easily be translated, turn away from such people. 
These people are the opposite of the kind of people we talked about a little while ago in chapter two. Those, those kind of people, he says, entrust this to faithful people, remember, who could teach other people also, 2 Timothy 2, 2. That's the kind of people he's talking about. Right now, he's contrasting against that. There are these faithful, reliable people. He says to Timothy, find them. They can teach others also. And here's the opposite. Those kind of people he talked about in chapter two, we call them sometimes fat Christians. It doesn't mean they're built like me. Fat, we still use as an acronym, faithful, available, and teachable. That's the kind of people we're always looking for in church. Leaderships are always looking for people who are faithful, who are available, who are teachable. But the kind of people Paul describes here in chapter three, they aren't fat. We can call them, I don't know, a lot of things, maybe whack, right? Wicked, arrogant, conniving. You can come up with some other acronyms if you like. But Paul is reflecting on the days after Jesus leaves the earth, and he realizes there are going to be shady characters who will negatively influence the church. Some of them are inside the church, and some of them are outside the church. Now, I have no real desire to point fingers, but surely what Paul talks about is happening in our world right now. I mean, we could all probably think of someone who seems to love himself more than anyone else, who surely loves money. And I can think of a popular person who could be described as boastful, arrogant, brutish, maybe a few other words on this list. While Paul says to turn away from such people, it seems interesting that there's a tendency among a lot of Christians today to turn towards such a person. And I think it's noteworthy of some reflection. Let the hearer understand. But Paul, <laughs> Paul speaks and he tells that there are shady characters and there will be those who will find their influence in Christian community. This is what he's saying. And I've noticed that sometimes churches have this tendency to be influenced by that kind of negativity from the outside and even to let it be in the inside. Sometimes even electing people into offices that, that are not really spiritually ready. We do it because they seem impressive. They got good jobs or they keep showing up, so they're around all the time, so we might as well put them on in charge or something. <laughs> Some of you, I think, you could, if, you can, if you grew up in church, there's probably people who pop into your mind that if I ask you, who was a pillar of the church that's really faithful? Oh, man, these wonderful images pop into mind. They do for me. And then I could also ask you, who was that person who was on that committee for 20 years and you wondered if they were even a Christian? And somebody else pops into your mind, too. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, you, you can have those memories. Uh, and, but, 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 as, but as I'm leaving here and getting ready to go, I just want to encourage you in this sense. I mean, your elders came up and spoke here, and I didn't even expect this to give a tribute to me, but we have leadership that exercises great discernment discernment on who gets influence in the community of God's people from the outside or the inside. I mean, we don't let politicians speak from the pulpit. And that's been, that's been true in my life wherever, wherever I served. But everywhere I've served, most of the people in those churches agreed with that. We don't need that. Now, some churches don't share that view. I understand that. But I think that our leaders here, elder board, ministry teams, are, are doing a great job of affirming leaders who understand our mission and letting the voices from the pulpit be those voices that come from people who follow Christ. That's what we want. We want people who are coming as followers of Christ. They might not say everything you agree with. I mean, I don't say everything I'm sure you agree with. But we want people at least coming from a passion for Jesus and not just bringing them because they seem influential in the world. So far. 
as we read Paul's words in chapter 3, I see him telling us, don't be surprised that the distressing times will come, so don't be surprised at evil. I see him also calling us to be discerning because he said some of these folks have made their way into the community. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. But I think on the third point I want to make is to not be alarmed by any of that, but to understand that we can trust God to be a judge of those who oppose his church. When I did, the year I did graduate from high school, yep, 40 years ago, 78, um, Jim Jones had had that horrible incident in Guyana Guyana that some of you know about. Um, If you ever, and there's some books out there that are talking about his, you know, many years later, looking back and reflecting on that. But Jim Jones, and I've, Years ago, when we were at Ann White, and I played a clip of one of his sermons because he was a pretty powerful communicator. And if you listen to this part of his sermons, you'd be like, whoa, amen, amen. Because God was a gift. He had one of the first uh, interracial churches in the, in the 70s. He was doing all kinds of stuff in Indianapolis, and then he moved around. And eventually, though, you know, the craziness started to come out, and he, he went to Guyana, had this whole compound called Jonestown. And you remember when when, uh, the politicians came, because one of them had a daughter in Jonestown, they came to check out what was going on there in this commune, and the shooting started. Before that happened, he had them all drink drink the Kool-Aid, and some of that is on on tape. There were some recordings that were going on. It was horrible. Now, I said drink the Kool-Aid. That's an expression in our society now, to drink the Kool-Aid, which came from from there. Kool-Aid insists it was a knockoff flavor aid. It was not Kool-Aid because they don't like their reputation to be tarnished. (laughs) But the point is, Jim Jones, with all his charisma, with this interracial church, was a deceiver. And Paul is concerned about those who could lead people astray. He mentions names. This Jonas and Jambres. We don't have, I don't have time to get into it, but these are the people in Exodus that oppose Moses. They don't have names in Exodus. Paul gets their names from a whole rabbinic tradition, Jonas and Jambres. Their names aren't even mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. But the point is they oppose Moses. And he says, but it won't go anywhere. He says that these false teachers will ultimately not make progress, he says. Or some translations say they won't get very far. But they'll eventually be exposed as fakes. That might be encouraging, but how much will we have to endure up until that time? We can all laugh and and denounce Jim Jones now, but he took nearly a thousand people with him. Charming, charismatic people are wonderful, but if they're not truly godly people, then their gift becomes a recipe for potential disaster. So let's trust God to judge the deceivers and let's continue with our discernment. So now, lastly, when you read verses like two to five and you see all these horrible things, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, all that stuff, you might think, well, those people are out there. We just got to make sure we don't let it come in here. And I'm saying, well, Paul isn't just warning us about those folks out there. He is saying that a lot of what's out there will start to influence us too. That's how the world operates. Christians are in this world. The responsibility is on us to not become victims of the way the world operates and how it, how it believes. Because we'll, we'll be tempted continually to be like this, selfish people who love money, who are boastful, arrogant, who are generally unholy. Our vigilance and discernment isn't just about who enters into the fellowship. It's about us. What enters into us? Are we consuming a steady diet of violence and sexual immorality and consumerism? Who are our examples? Arrogant, boastful, treacherous people? What measures do we take to counteract these end-time attitudes and actions? I love that the sanctuary continues 
to find ways to be in this world, but not just like this world. That's what it means for Christians to live in the last days. You heard it as a cliche. Christians are in the world, but not of the world. I actually share that view. We aren't called to cloister ourselves away from the world forever. We're called to be active in this world, resisting the works of the devil and demonstrating the way of Jesus. Amen. If that's somebody's car, y'all can go take care of that. Because I know y'all listen to it now. <laughs> but seriously, as I leave here, I want to, my, want to offer my encouragement to this entire community that we not be taken surprised by evil. We don't have to say, oh, my goodness, we got to pack up and move someplace else. No, we need to bring our salt and light wherever there's darkness and unsavoriness. I want to encourage us to exercise discernment that we not be unduly influenced by people, no matter how prominent they are in the world, influenced whether they claim to be Christian or not. If they are not exhibiting the character of Christ, then we don't really need to weigh that into our lives. And then we need to trust that while we don't have to go out and destroy those folks, God will take care of them. And God will bless us right here along this corridor of Broadway and beyond. Now, sisters and brothers, I often think one of the best ways to respond to a message is, yeah, come forward and pray. And some people are really good at making the altar call about that. But I want it to be about us responding to God in a way that might be unique for you. But I like to have the Lord's Supper as a response because even when words fail us, in that simple action, we're saying, Lord, I need you. And I take that bread, I dip it in the cup, and I consume it. And in many ways, it's saying, or it can say, Lord, this is about you, and I want all of you. I want you to fill me. I want to taste and see that you're good. I want to understand and recognize that you're here. And the communion service does all of that. And it's also a moment where we renew our commitment to say, I want to walk with you. And if there is something that's agitating or something that's not right, when I come to the table, it often reminds me right there that if the Lord's here, he can hear me. It can help make, th- make right the things that are broken in my life and even in the world around me. So I like to have the Lord's Supper be a response to our engagement with the scriptures. So we're going to have that time now. I'm going to take a moment to pray, and as I pray, Pastor Mike's going to come up, and the servers are going to come up, and the praise team will come, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we give you thanks because you're good and your mercies endure forever. Lord, I thank you. It's been a full day and a lot of emotions, Lord. I I just love to see when our children engage in, in church, and I thank you, Lord, for Vacation Bible School. Lord, I thank you even for this building. We're in air conditioning and it's so hot outside and we're not waving fans. We're, we're comfortable and that's a gift from you and we are grateful. Lord, I looked at the screen and we were watching like three different things happen at the same time that this technology has been awesome. You've just been so good to us, Lord God, and we're grateful. Lord, but we don't want just those things to mark who we are. We want our faith to mark who we are. So I pray, Lord, you'd encourage and renew our faith and strengthen us this morning to be discerning people that despite the evil of this world, we cling to you and we know your promises are sure. Lord, help us to meet you today in the bread and the cup. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.